Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Patrick Lynn, a cinematographer responsible for shaping the visuals for some of Pixar's most beloved movies over the last 20 years, and whose credits include Ratatouille, Inside Out, and most recently, Toy Story 4. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics, from the creative pipeline Pixar relies on to develop story for some of their most acclaimed movies, to Patrick's first experience as a feature cinematographer with The Incredibles, creating one of the most iconic and tragic openings with the Married Life montage for Up, an in-depth conversation on Toy Story 4, and much more. If you'd like to hear more, hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. So we're going to be covering a wide range of experiences in your career, starting from your early days as an assistant, all the way to your most recent work on Toy Story 4 as a cinematographer. But because the layout department is the one you have the most familiarity with, I want to make sure listeners understand it well. So if you had to describe the job of a layout artist to your grandmother, how would you explain it? <laughs> I will explain to her that I'm an animator. That's the easiest because everyone thinks that uh, animation is just one job. Is you're an animator, but I usually describe to people is we're basically the camera crew on a live action shoot. So we basically set up the camera and we choose the lens, we compose the shots, but we do a little bit more, which is we also do staging. We have to figure out how to stage the characters. We have to decide uh, where the character stands. We have to decide sometimes which hands the character pick up something, which way the character turns, how they enter the screen, how they exit the scene, etc, etc. So before jumping into any projects, it's great that you mentioned this. I want to make sure people understand the creative process of shaping the cinematography of an animated movie. And this is what you had to say about it. Quote, in live action, you would say lights, camera, action. But in computer animation, the order becomes camera, action, and then lights. First, we set up the camera movement in the computer, as you said. Then the animation team creates character movement and acting. And finally, we take care of lighting as part of the final render. It's my understanding that lighting is also the most expensive. So the layout department, again, as we said it, it really sets up the foundation of all departments to follow. And it's the first step into exploring what the film will look like cinematically. So with camera and lighting, being separate departments in the production pipeline, why do you think this process has been so effective for you guys on a creative level? I think it's just because we want to have as much time to explore how we're going to shoot the film. A process goes down uh, the pipeline, it becomes more and more expensive. And Layout has a very small team. First of all, we only have uh, 15 people you know, on our team and we touch every shot. As it goes down to animation, the animation department becomes 90 people. And the lighting department becomes a little bit smaller nowadays. But in the beginning of uh, like maybe 15, 20 years ago, the lighting team is huge as well. Now the lighting team can be uh, about 20, 20 people. But the rendering process is expensive because every shot takes about hours or sometimes up to days to render. So 
the best way to explore how we're going to shoot the film is in the beginning, where we we don't really do render, we do a recording from the screen. So each shot takes up much much quicker, and we work really closely with editorial to trying to figure out how we visually visual narrative of the film. You know, trying to explore how we're going to shoot it, how we're going to tell the story. So by Having the layout department in the beginning of the process allows the director to explore how he wants to tell the story, cinematically. Allow me to take a step back and ask you about your earlier experiences with projects like James and the Giant Peach, where you worked as a camera and lighting assistant,、yeah. and a Bug's Life that was your first job as a layout artist. So, looking back at all the experience you have now, what were the biggest creative lessons you were absorbing by working on these first two projects, especially with your early days at Pixar? Starting with James and Giant Peach, I was a camera assistant. I actually come from、uh, not an animation background. I、uh, study live action films, so I have a live action degree, and I always love animations. But I cannot really draw. So back then, you know, if you can't draw, you know, then you can't really work in animations. But、uh, I do love animated films, and my experience, I always gravitate towards、uh, working on the camera as I was going going to film school. And James and Giant Peach actually is stop motion animations, so it is actually is a hybrid of live actions and animated films. So that is actually is a very great start for me. Before I started on James and Giant Peach, I was actually a I've done DP work before, but it is in Special effects. So I was doing ride films. So I was doing as kind of like the Star Tours. You know, I actually shoot the film and doing motion control programming. And so James and Giant Peach was a, was a great stepping stone for me to get into animation. And from there, you get your first job at Pixar, working on A Bug's Life. And I can imagine going from stop motion to full on CG animation must have been a big change. It was actually a great change because、uh, James and Giant Peach was a really tough. Film to work on. It was、uh, the hours are long and everything is heavy. I think that's by design, because that is before digital photography too. So everything was、uh, all the camera、uh, was shot with the Mitchell, and the cameras are very heavy. The magazines are heavy. Everything by design is heavy so that it doesn't move during the weeks of animations. And it was really tiring moving those things. And if you make a mistakes, like sometimes there's a glue string. You know that was like、uh, that we left on the set and it was like jittering, and those things they cannot be undo. You have to kind of reshoot the whole thing. And after that, that experience, I got God. You know, it's like this is really hard to make animated films. And then a lot of my friends started to go into computer animations at Pixar, and I thought to myself, God, that actually is kind of nice to do、uh, computer animation because that's undo. If I make a mistake, I can actually undo it, and and I can move everything with a mouse. I don't have to carry anything. I don't have to lift anything heavy. I thought、oh, that might be a good thing to do after uh, after the, the grueling work of one year of James Jameson Giant Peach. So I decided to apply to Pixar. I actually applied to both Pixar and PDI, which is、uh, DreamWorks,、um, the predecessor. To Dream DreamWorks, and I didn't really get a response from、uh, PDI, but I did get a response from Pixar. And luckily,、uh, I went for an interview, and it actually took nine months of interviewing process. I did three interviews with them. At first, I was actually applying to Toy Story Two, and at that time, was direct to video. I was applying、um, as a layout artist for for that film. They did not really take me. But luckily, the manager of a Bugs Life was sitting in one of those interview, and she called me back for a, like a third interview, and that actually landed me the job. So I, my first film instead of Toy Story Two, that interview four, I went, I became a layer artist on the Bugs Life.
And it was a learning curve. You know, I don't know anything about computers. I don't know anything about Linux. They taught me everything, and we basically hit the ground running. I think I got two weeks of training, and then my first shots. I started my first shots after two weeks. And I always loved playing with GI Joe when I was a kid. I loved the possibility of the toy. And working on the digital character was was so much fun. It's basically like a GI Joe on steroids. You know, GI Joe have like twenty seven articulation points, and I was playing with Flick, and it has like thousands. And it was so much fun to work on. <laughs> yeah, at that time I thought I thought you know it was just like a a, a one film gig. You know, and、uh, you know after this I'll I'll just go on and look for another job. That's how film business works, right? And then somehow I've been there for twenty two years now, <laughs> still having fun. You know, and that's what animation really offers you, which、yeah. stop motion, as you said, didn't. Just the ability of understanding which camera angles are going to convey the most emotion, are going to fit the story better, especially because then you have to translate them into editorial choices, which is something we were talking about just a second ago. Yeah. So about it, you had this to say, quote. At Pixar, we don't assemble story on a shot-to-shot basis. Like live action, we cover entire beats by blocking a full scene and then picking the best angles and lenses to cover it. This results in overlapping action, so that the editor can pick the best cut points and cover a sequence in a way that feels cinematic. Close quote. So you spoke about maintaining a spontaneous effect in this case when you first choose lenses for the virtual camera. How do you select enough angles to provide the editor with variety, but not too many angles where you're starting to come up with more shots than you actually need? Yeah, so it's a fine balance. It depends on the sequence, you know. If it's a sequence of just two people talking, it's pretty basic, you know. You just you just create、uh, the master shots and then you go in and shoot in the shoot the close-ups. Those are、uh, more straightforward. The coverage become increasingly more if we start to do action sequences, like for the Incredibles. You know, we do a lot more coverage for those, or、um, let's say for Toy Story Four. I think when they're trying to break into the cabinet, that is like one of our biggest action sequence, and that. You know that we provide tons of coverage for those, but yeah, it's a fine balance. You know, but the coverage comes from some idea. And sometimes, if you just do the boards for action sequences, you might have like a hundred shots. But sometimes you want to marrying shots together and trying to make it more smooth. And then from there, you know, you might oh maybe maybe I I can actually、uh, cover it from this angle and make it better. So yeah, so it's just a fine balance. You know, and we just try to provide coverage, but this doesn't overwhelm the editor. And usually, when we provide Coverage to editorial, we will sit down with the editor and kind of walk them through what we're thinking when we're shooting it. So say, okay, this is version number one. If you go with、uh, option A for this shot, it'll go to the other shots, and if you go to option B for this shot, it'll go down another route. So we、we'll、basically lay out all the options for the editor and for him or her to choose. And a lot of times, you know, they will come up with a, with a third option. You know, oh, maybe we can combine this shot with that shot, and they'll make the cut smoother. Or, you know, I don't, really don't want to show this part at this point, so we have to kind of rearrange things. So yeah, it's very malleable, very fluid. I'm glad you mentioned the Incredibles because I feel like if on one side we're talking about traditional coverage, on the other here you have a movie that leans into like a very classic style of filmmaking and embraces a number of beautiful one take setups. You know, for example, when Mr. Incredible sets off the sprinklers in the house, him and Elastigirl have to dry the book pages by hand, and there's this beautiful 46 second master that goes from a wide of them in the living room and pushes into a close up of Mr. Incredible, and it's just one example. 
example of many. So I, I was wondering in what ways were you guys trying to use camera to make this movie feel as cinematic of an experience as possible? And in what ways did your creative experience on The Incredibles differ from others you may have done before? Well, Incredibles is my first DP job at Pixar, and it was、um, kind of a hard movie to make. I think is because there was a lot of limitations. It's the first time we do human. It's the first time we have every every character has、uh, clothing simulations. So there's a lot of things that have to work around. Like、uh, we cannot do shirt grabbing. You know, we can, there's a lot of things like we cannot do like、uh, picking up of the clothing and have him pin the mic on. We have to kind of hide it. There's a lot of things we have to kind of hide to. Uh, kind of work around things,、uh, and yes,、uh, the sequence you're talking about when Bob and Helen is drying the books,、uh, yes, it's a it's a very long shots, and it's kind of interesting. That is actually the master shots of the sequence that we shot, and we actually have、uh, other shots to cover that moment as well. And Brad,、uh, after he saw all the footage, and decided that he just really liked this one long tracking shots to cover that moment, and I'm glad he did that too because I I also like long shots. And I kind of did the same thing on Up when Carl and Russell was just on top of the tepui when they're in front of the campfire. I also have a long, slow tracking shots, you know, while、uh, Russell is talking about his dad, and、uh, and also on Toy Story 4 as well. Although it means a little bit differently, on Toy Story 4, the two longest shot is after Woody jumps out of the RV when when he's walking Forky back into town. We have two longest shots in the film, which is 46 seconds and 55 seconds, and in Toy Story 4 context,、uh, long shots means when Woody is stuck in the past. That's why that we have the two longest shots on him at that moment because I think that is the lowest point for Woody. This is when he's the most lost and he just doesn't know、uh, where his life is heading and is really questioning his purpose at that time. And on the Incredibles, one of the harder thing was Brad Bird, the director. He came from a 2D background, and in the beginning, he spent quite a bit of time to refine the storyboards in 2D. And he sometimes got stuck with the timing, and it's really hard to translate from 2D to 3D with the same timing because sometimes the camera just does not move that fast. And when he got stuck with those timing, we、we'll、have to kind of find a way to get the camera to work. With that timing, that sometimes is the hardest thing: is the translating the boards that he was so stuck with into 3D. And in the beginning,、uh, like the first scene, which is the chase scenes, was the golden day of the heroes. In the beginning, that is one of the first scene that goes into productions. When you look at that scenes again, a lot of the timing is really quick. Some of the shots are a bit choppy, just because we're trying to match the、uh, the timing of the boards. Sometimes the camera has to move a little bit unrealistically fast. He's trying to go from point A to point B, and that that to me sometimes it kind of takes you out of. It takes me out anyway. Sometimes it becomes very cartoony in the sense. If the camera moves too fast, it becomes cartoony. But the last scene that goes into production is the final battle scenes. And when you look at that scene compared to the first scene, it's very different. And、uh, because we actually did the previous, it's less storyboard, and、uh, Brad was a lot more open to using alts and trying to make the scenes go a little bit smoother. So. When you look at the final battle compared to the first scene, the chase scenes, the first scene is a little bit more choppy, and I think the final battle is more fluid. The coverage, everything, you can see a little bit more clearly as well, too. Hmm. But perhaps you'll come with a challenge, eh? Have a surprise to get your call. E. I just need a pass job. What have you been doing, Robert? Moonlighting hero work? Must have happened a long time ago. I see. 
This is a hobo suit, darling. You can't be seen in this. I won't allow it. Fifteen years ago, maybe, but now... Oh, what do you mean? You designed it. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. You need a new suit. Don't much is certain. A new suit? Oh, where the heck am I going to get a new you suit? You can't! It's impossible! I'm far too busy, so ask me now before I again become sane. Wait. You want to make me a suit? No, you push too hard, darling. But I accept. It's amazing to hear you talk about the fact that you had an evolution of experience within one movie, you know, from, from the way you began working on it to the way you ended it. And speaking of Brad, you know, you also worked as a lead layout artist on my favorite picture film, which is Ratatouille. What strikes me about that film is that there is a one-of-a-kind European setting. You're basing the story pretty much all in Paris, and even though we haven't spoken about production yet, you know, it's my understanding that an empty set, when you work with a production designer, I'll ask you a lot about that, but an empty set can really inspire the way you pick camera angles. So I was wondering for you, what were the greatest challenges working on Ratatouille of covering a movie where such a small main character, you know, Remy the Rat, is juxtaposed not only against bigger counterparts, you know, the humans, but the large cityscape of Paris overall. So now you have a small character against a large background, and you guys have not only traditional scenes, but you have quite a number of action sequences as well. How do you give scale to this? When we first started working on that film, we know that about half the movie happens in the kitchen. It actually goes back to Incredibles. Incredibles is when we first started doing Previs. Back then, you know, Previs uh, is not very common, especially at Pixar. We never do Previs. We just go in and trying to shoot the film. But uh, on Incredibles, since there are so many one-off sets, like the jungle, we have to start doing Previs, trying to figure out how big the space needs to be before we go in to actually finally build the sets. We kind of took that idea onto Ratatouille. So the first thing we do is we previs the uh, the kitchen. We spend a lot of time in previsiting the, the kitchen, trying to get the scale right between Remy and also uh, uh, Remy and the humans. And uh, where should the the freezer goes? How many um, stovetops needs to be? And it's, it keeps changing. I remember one time before there was no office for Gusto within the kitchen. And then after one screening, uh, story real screening, story needs that there needs to be an office with inside the kitchen, and we have to kind of find ways to carve out space for that office. So it's the second thing we're starting to do previous, still kind of new for us. So we spent a lot of time doing previous, trying to get the scale right. And depending on where Remy goes, he goes underneath the stove, and we have to kind of look up and see what's underneath the stove that can give us scale. So there was one scene that he runs underneath it, and all the gas starts to turn on and the fire. So we're trying to see how high the height needs to be and can the camera actually not going under the ground but still see Remy and seeing the, the flames and it's just kind of give it that scale. And sometimes we do cheat the scale a little bit too. We kind of scale things up here and there and maybe scale Remy down a little bit just to get the scale right. Yeah, that scene when he uh, then he fell into the water and was running around inside the kitchen. That's when I actually shot that scene and it was super fun to work on trying to get the scale right. In general, just creating contrast in a movie is a very difficult thing to renew the visual scope. And as you pointed out, a lot of the movie takes place in the kitchen. And there you feel even more jarred when you have a, a chase sequence chasing Remy on a, on, a, on a little scooter. And they're going through the streets of Paris and, you know, onto the riverbank. That is so much set you got to worry about. How far out do you have to design the city of Paris when you're working on a sequence like that? 
Oh, that started、uh, even before we start. Once we know that we have a scene that's a, that's a chase in the, in the city of Paris, the production designer will start to based on the boards to trying to figure out how many set pieces that we would need, and then they will start constructing it in a very rough sense,、uh, and then we'll go in and start shooting and see really what do we see before they go in and do the final、uh, modeling and shading and dressing. Yeah, so it depends. Like、um, if you go back to Well, even a bigger scale is the city on the Incredibles, the big battle at the end. How big that city needs to be? We've never built a city before. We're usually trying to contain it, and that was a big challenge for us trying to get that city. How much city do we need to build? That's what the previous comes in, then trying to figure out okay, exactly which part do we need, and we're trying to restage it so that we can actually contain in the smaller area. So during the boarding phase, they would just board whatever they do. Board all the story beats. You know, they're not really thinking about. Where to shoot something, and when we're doing previs for the big battle for the Incredibles, we try to limit.、Uh, okay, we can shoot this part、uh, here, and then we can connect this part to here. So we kind of limit the whole city to just a T junctions in the corner of a city. Basically, we have to use previs to trying to contain the actions. I need this job. I've lost so many. I don't know how to cook, and now I'm actually talking to a rat as if you. Huh? Did you not? Have have you been nodding? <laughs> you understand me, so I'm not crazy. <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. I、uh, I can't cook, can I? But you, <laughs> you can, right? Look, don't be so modest. You're a rat for Pete's sake. Whatever you did, they liked it. Yeah, this could work. You're pointing out that throughout this process is really about understanding what the story needs more of and what to take away. And you mentioned a moment ago what are known to be the Pixar story screenings to test the film not only for visual storytelling, obviously, but for emotion. Before a film gets to an audience, you're putting together these small screenings for people within the team or maybe friends and family. So, what do you look for on a feedback level from these experiences, and how confident about a sequence's visual language do you have? To be before you finally decide. Okay, it's locked. It's ready to go. Let's put it into final lighting and texture. I think it's a long process for the entire production of a animated films. We usually will have eight screenings, and I think the first three to four screenings are all storyboards is before productions actually starts. So it's a long process, and we usually it is just employees seeing it. We seldom invite family to our screenings. And the good thing about Pixar is、uh, everyone. Send in our notes, and the producers or the directors read all of our notes. And a lot of times, they actually respond individually to our notes. They will say, "Okay, I understand your notes, and sometimes I cannot do this because this." You know, so they will try to explain themselves. And sometimes they do take our notes. If a lot of people has the same feeling, sometimes our notes is not really about the solutions. We just basically poking at the problems. You know, say,、so, "Okay, I really don't like this character. I don't have a solution for it, but I don't like it." If a lot of people say, "I don't like this." Character directors and the producers has to kind of figure out why do people have、uh, have a negative feeling for these characters and they have to figure out and find the solutions. So yeah, so everyone will、uh, give in their notes. And for for me anyway, when I started on the film, I really tried to figure out what the conflict is. I mean, what the movie is about, and whether it's just a, a in, internal conflict or a、um, philosophical conflict. By understanding the conflict, I feel that I can have a way of shooting the film because I love building structure 
based on the conflict、uh, of the film. For up,、uh, for instance, you know what is the conflict of the film? You know, and we decided on the philosophical conflict of pessimism versus、uh, optimism, the old versus the new, the rigid versus the flexible. That is what kind of the movie is about, and we, that's why we base the camera structure on on the philosophical conflict of up. And for、uh, every film is different, you know.、Uh, so、uh, on Inside Out, we kind of base it on the external conflict, which is the inside world versus the outside world. And for、uh, Toy Story Four, it's the internal conflict of Woody, which is like he wants to stay constant while the world is changing around him, and he resists that change. In the early days, when I'm planning the film, I'm trying to find what is the conflict that I can actually base some style and camera movement on. I'm glad you brought up up. Because I I would be remiss not to ask you specifically about that opening montage with Ellie and Carl. It's obviously you know a prime example of visual storytelling at its finest. Yeah. You know, and with no dialogue, you're conveying a lifetime between this couple growing older together, and it earns the necessary emotion for the rest of the movie. So. I wanted to ask you. There's so much we could talk about, but if we had to focus on that opening sequence, how did you work with director Pete Docter to make sure that each shot was crafted to convey story and emotion? Married life definitely is、uh, the heart of the film. The whole sequence spanned a whole lifetime for Carl and Ellie, and we have to. Shoot it、uh, pretty strategically, and、I、remember our story supervisor、uh, Ronnie Docarman ordered that sequence pretty tightly, just to make sure that we know exactly how many variations of model we need of different ages for Carl and Ellie, and also、uh, very specific sets we need too, because there are a lot of one-off sets and also effects like flat tires, rain, and tree hitting the roof and cracking it. So we're very specific and following the boards set up by、uh, Ronnie Docarman. From the model, we only have the young Carl and the old Carl, and in the middle, we have to build extra characters to represent their age, but also how many characters do we need to build to represent the aging between Carl and Ellie? We can only do like one extra model that's in between age. We cannot be oh, we can we can do one when they are like a thirty, and then the forty, and then the fifty. Then we just can't do it. So we have to be a little bit more strategic. But what's interesting is how the sequence is shot in context with the rest of the film. There are two sequences before the sequences. The first one is the prologue, is when we introduce Carl, and also the second sequence is Carl meeting Ellie. There are a few camera movements here and there, a little pan here, a little tilt there, but all the camera movements are kind of isolated and and very subtle. I think the biggest camera movement in that time is the introduction of Carl, which is when the camera sort of a crane down from a projector. Down to his face, and that's the biggest camera movement. And the camera doesn't really become active until they got married. So we use a series of tracking shots, pushing in, pulling back. The camera movements are kind of slow and gentle, very lyrical, and trying to symbolizing them moving through life together. They're living through their married life happily, most of the time happily. And the sequence、uh, sort of end with a very slow pull back. So after Ellie's death, after the funeral, when Carl is walking back inside the house, we have a very, very slow pullback as he's walking in. I think that's the smallest camera movement and slowest camera movement of the entire film. And right after he walks into the house and after the door closes, the camera comes to a stop. 
and between his wife's death and to the point when he take off in his house in the balloon at the end of Act One, this period of time is uh, one of his lowest point in the film. So there are 146 shots in this moment, and all of those shots are、uh, lock-off shots. With the exceptions of、uh, six shots, which is after Carl hits the construction workers over the head, and we want to give the audience the same disoriented feeling of Carl. The camera becomes unlocked a little bit, except for that six shots. Everything else, 140 shots, they're all lock-off shots. The camera didn't move, and、uh, and besides that, we also trying to frame Carl with a down angle, just to make sure that you're looking down on him, make him feel small. At this time, he's also very isolated. So we try to frame him with the divisions or frame in frame. He is、uh, framed within the door frame most of the time, or framed within the mirror. Besides that, one of my favorite filmmaker is Ozu, and I want to pay homage to him. So we used a 50 millimeter lens only for this 146 shots, and we never change the lens until we see the balloon when the house goes up. That's when we switch the 50 millimeter lens to a wide angle lens, and also we have the biggest camera movement of tilt in the entire film from the house to the balloons right before the house takes off. And and also that series of tracking shots we use for married life, we didn't really use it in the entire film. That type of camera movement until we hit the end of Act Two. That is when Carl is、uh, in the house on top of the pui after he lost Kevin and after Russell is angry with him and he's alone again, kind of like、uh, the time that after Ellie's death. And when he's flipping through the pages on the adventure book, when he's inside the house alone, we use the same camera movement as in married life. Very slow. Gentle tracking shots, pushing in, pulling back, and the reason for using the same type of camera movement is because we are trying to link the audience back to the merry life, because that's exactly what Carl is thinking. He is reliving his his time with Ellie through the adventure book. So by using the same type of camera movement and by linking these two moments. The goal is to try to create a deeper meaning within the visual, so that the audience can feel a little bit more、um, emotions. And this is kind of why I like graphing the whole film, so I can see how the film's visual intensity progresses. And by seeing the big pictures, it's easier for me to find moments in the film that correlates to each other. If I can connect moments visually, I can create a deeper meaning. Good afternoon. My name is Russell. And I am a wilderness explorer in Tribe 54, Sweat Lodge 12. Are you in need of any assistance today, sir? No. I could help you cross the street. No. I could help you cross your yard. No. I could help you cross your porch. No. Well, I gotta help you cross something. Uh, no, I'm doing fine. You spoke about having to make a graph to map the entire journey of a character's emotion through the three acts. So, for example, you're giving a value from one to ten, where the emotion of the character also has to be matched by what's happening on screen, perhaps with a camera movement. As you said, this opening sequence is very quiet, and then by the time we get to the end, where they have the house tied on a rope and they're jumping on rocks and the camera's flying all over, there's an evolution visually to what's also happening on screen. So it was. 
was wondering from movie to movie, could you talk about how as a cinematographer you try to use a visual variety of color, light, and camera movement so that each sequence ignites a different emotional reaction in the audience? The graphs is just my way of um, trying to have a structure to the film. Because I have a team of 15 people, it's easier for me to communicate to them how intense I want the sequence to be. For Up, for example, the first action sequence is uh, when the house got stuck in the storm. We can actually go all over the place because that's a very exciting sequence. But I know that I need to hold off on some of the more um, dynamic and uh, intense shots for later. So I convey to the team who is building the shots, okay, this sequence is our first action sequence, so the shot needs to be dynamic. But instead of the camera moving all over the place, Let's have the house swaying back and forth, and the camera is actually is relatively still. Most of the movement comes from the house moving. This is something that, that I can convey to the team, and we'll save our more intense shots for this sequence, so they kind of know how to kind of structure it. Uh, having that structure, I can also plan out what kind of camera movements for different sequences. By basing the cameras on two different styles, you can actually pull and push depending on what the character emotion is feeling, right? So for Toy Story 4, you know, we have Woody, you know, when he really stuck in the past, the camera is very mechanical. Uh, we use a track, boom, and crane. And bow represents change when how we shoot her is very different too. We try to not have a lock-off camera. The cameras constantly have some movement to it and it's more dynamic. She represents something that's dynamic and constant is something that is uh, still. So we have this conflict of camera style. Woody on one style and we shoot bow on a different style. We also use different lenses as well. Shooting uh, when Woody got stuck in the past, we use a spherical lens and with bow we use anamorphic lenses. So all these are just visually trying to tell the story a little bit more based on what the character is feeling. In no film you can see that more clearly, for example, jumping six years ahead from Up, you have Inside Out. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's the first feature in which you're creating what we can call an imperfect visual language. You experimented with this technique on the blue umbrella. If anyone listening hasn't seen the short, I, I highly recommend it. And it's my understanding that after your experience on the blue umbrella, you kind of wanted to apply that on a bigger scale on a feature film. About it, you had this to say, quote, our philosophy is always to treat our camera as if it's a real camera in a real physical location. We try not to do anything a real camera wouldn't do, and we add imperfections to make our images feel more organic and almost like they had a human touch." Close quote. So in the blue umbrella and then in Inside Out, you have what we can consider a lot of handheld camera moves and you're juxtaposing the inside of Riley's mind with very smooth moves with the outside world where you were speaking about you know using handheld cameras with mocap trackers on it. You're purposely having, you know, follow focus, miss the mark as if it was a real operator. So I was wondering, when did this concept of introducing imperfection enter your sphere of thought as a cinematographer? And why do you think it's so effective for the audience's experience on an emotional level? Imperfection, I think, is always something that Pixar strives for. If you look at the first Toy Story, you know, the imperfection of like, uh, there's smudges at the corner of the door. Imperfection is, makes things less computery. It's been our philosophy as a layout department. 
that you know we should always treat the camera as real as possible. And for Blue Umbrella, I'm glad you bring that up. That is not the first time we do mode uh, a camera capture. It's not even like the first time that anyone do camera capture. I think Surf's Up is the first one that, that actually do camera capture for our computer animated films. And also on Toy Story 3, in the opening sequence when mom's uh, video uh, taping Andy, that's the first time Pixar used um, camera tracking for the camera movements, trying to make it more realistic. But when we do that in Toy Story 3, we have to actually use, uh, use a PC to capture it on a different program and then uh, port those data into uh, our proprietary software. But for Blue Umbrella, that's the first time to actually develop the system, a little bit more robust system that we can actually capture directly into our proprietary software. So that make the process a little bit more smoother. And also the reason that I use camera capture for Blue Umbrella really is because the idea of the film is uh, photorealistic. And I sort of take that idea and build it on the inside out. First day of school, very, very exciting. I was up late last night figuring out a new plan. Here it is, fear. <laughs> I need a list of all the possible negative outcomes on the first day at a new school. Way ahead of you there. Does anyone know how to spell meteor? Disgust. Make sure Riley stands out today, but also blends in. When I'm through, Riley will look so good, the other kids will look at their own outfits and barf. Joy. Yes, Joy? You'll be in charge of the console, keeping Riley happy all day long. And may I add, I love your dress, it's adorable. Oh, this old thing? Thank you so much. I love the way it twirls. <laughs> And inside out, once Riley is becomes unstable in act two, the camera is always unlocked. There was some little movement to it, but there's no spatial movement. In act three, when she decided that uh, she's going to run away from home, she feel that her parents are not uh, supporting her. So the camera is not really supported by any tripod or gear, so it becomes uh, handheld. And that's when we use that system of uh, camera capture and, and apply that for Act 3 of Inside Out. I wish I would do a little bit more as well too. I think the handheld is quite tame and I, I'm kind of worried that we're doing too much because sometimes Pete might find that too jarring. So I'm trying to be more conservative about it. You continue to evolve this imperfect visual language style into Toy Story 4 and I wanted to spend the final portion of our conversation talking about that. I can't express how much I love the movie. Oh, thank you. It's truly remarkable. And the movie was released in June of, of 2019, but I just wanted to give some context to listeners as to how long and extensive the production of a movie like this can be. So how early on did you start working on a movie like Toy Story 4? Well, this is a very unique story. I started almost immediately after Inside Out's wrapped back in 20, end of 2015. And the movie is supposed to come out, Toy Story 4, it is supposed to come out in 2017. And I thought, oh, this is, is going to be a quick one. It's going to be an easy one. <laughs> it's directed by uh, John Lasseter, who was the original director. I mean, he's the boss, and, and, and he knew what he's doing. Easy peasy. And of course, uh, things did not happen as planned. Uh, so uh, this movie ended up taking four years. And it was a hard film to do, too. It is uh, Toy Story 4 is a sequel no one asked for. It's very hard to try to find, okay, what more of a story that, uh, that we can tell that is, we're not repeating ourselves. So for story, it's, uh, it's a long process to trying to figure out what is it that we really want to say about Woody? What more can the audience learn about Woody? And it takes a while to figure it out. And for the longest time, we actually don't really know what the movie is about. And I don't know how to shoot it. And it was stressful too. For the first two years, it started as a, a romantic comedy. It was just basically a love story between Woody and uh, and Bo. And it's really weird in the beginning. There's a scene of them kissing and I go, well, how 
how did they kiss? You know, I mean, Woody's head is like three times the size of Bo. <laughs> he's trying to use, uh, he's trying to use his camera angles, trying to hide it. Just like it just doesn't work. And I'm glad we took most of those things out in the final film. Allow me to ask you a little bit about the film's technical look, and there's been a big talk about lenses. Toy Story 4 embraces the feel of analog filmmaking. You know, you guys have split diopter shots. You developed a look that resembles Cook's spherical and anamorphics, and it's the first movie to be composed in a 2.39 aspect ratio, which is fascinating. So you mentioned a moment ago that you know Woody's internal conflict is to want to stay constant, and Bo Peep represents change. You Chose spherical lenses to represent Woody's perspective and anamorphic for Bo. So I wanted to ask you, how did you guys land on choosing this aspect ratio, and what about this project made you so determined to push the visual quality of the movie to an even further level with picking specific real cinema lenses like this? I think in the beginning of the film, we thought, okay, this is the fourth Toy Story. How do we want to shoot it? We want to actually make it look different enough so that give audience a fresh cinematic experience. The producer、uh, Jonas Rivera and director Josh Cooley think, oh, maybe shooting in widescreen will make a statement. That this is the this is a brand new chapter for Toy Story because at that time we don't know how we're gonna do it. Do we want to do three more? Do we want to trying to、uh, have another trilogy, or do we trying to end it here? We don't really know. I think on the original Toy Story, we also did some tests for widescreen as well. So the idea of shooting it Toy Story in widescreen is always in the DNA of the of the Toy Story franchise. So the idea of using anamorphic lenses、uh, came in when we decided to go widescreen. And since I always like to trying to shoot the film based on the conflict, I thought we can actually use two lenses for this. We actually did this idea also on Inside Out as well. The entire movie is spherical. We actually have two separate lenses as well. We have the Coke、uh, spherical. We also have the、uh, Airy Ultra Prime. One has、uh, more distortion and one has less distortion to represent the a more imperfect world versus a more Perfect world. Allow me to ask you about your relationship with Jean Claude Caliche, who supervised the lighting on on Toy Story Four, and even production designer Bob. Poly. I mean, we spoke a lot about camera, emotion, visual storytelling, but designing the sets with practical lighting and natural sources is a key element of the success of Toy Story 4. And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about designing the main sets of the movie? You know, like Gabby Gabby's Toy Store, the family RV, the outdoor carnival, and how you working with Bob Poly and Jean Claude to design lighting that's practically baked into the sets and is going to allow you to have. Variety of visuals. The two main sets are the antique mall and the carnival. Yeah, we spend almost a year in prepping that two sets for for productions. And、uh, Jean Claude is our lighting DP for for Toy Story to work.、Uh, he has to develop a lot of new technology for how to light the films. And I know that he wants the sets to feel real. And for the antique mall, there's a lot of texture to the lights as well. We have to develop. It's kind of like a light bulb technology. So there are like 50 different type of light bulbs within the antique mall. Some are LED, some are filaments. All has different wattage that gives out different temperatures. Every lights individual bulbs are sort of set by the lighting team. And also working with a、uh, Bob Polly,、uh, it's like where does the lights come from as well? You know, because besides the the light bulbs, there's also little tiny LED lights that comes from a Power strip, let's just say. You know, there's just like tons of lights inside, and everything's are designed by Bob and also a place by Jean Claude. 
And that's just inside the antique mall. Once we go to the carnival, that's a completely different new technology we have to invent. We have lots of blinking lights for all the rides. We have to have a sequential animated lights that we have to develop that technology so that they actually have a sequential light that is going, like uh, like the Ferris wheels, uh, the carousel as well. So Sean Claw and Bob uh, worked really closely together to carve out the lighting for that two sets. And for layout, when we are working, we actually don't really see those lights because those lights used to be rendered. What Jean-Claude did for us is he would give us a temporary light so that at least show us where the shadow be coming from, where the key light is coming from, where the bounce light is coming from, so that we have some general idea while we are working. For the inside the antique mall, for us uh, working with Bob Polly, that we need to figure out how the layout inside uh, works. And we do extensive previous in, in terms of how wide the aisle needs to be, how much stuff for each shelf needs to be. And we and we do extensive previous with Bob Polly and trying to figure out that space. We will also try something new for that. This time around too on Toy Story 4 is uh, using VR. Uh, so we, after Bob and the sets team built the sets, we'll put it into VR so we actually go inside the antique mall first uh, we can go in as a human being oh so this aisle feels good as a human but what does it feel like as a toy so we'll shrink ourselves down and walk around as a toy you know some aisle maybe it may looks really narrow uh, in the human scale but actually it's is actually pretty wide as a toy scale. So we're trying to figure out the sets that way, trying to make it feel, feels correct from a toy's point of view, also as a human point of view as well. Everyone, I want you to meet Forky. Golly, Bob Hatt. Look how long his arms are. Trash? <laughs> no, no, toys. They're all toys. Trash. No, 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 that's the trash, these are your friends. Come on. Ah! <gasps> trash. Shh, no, no, it's okay. Trash. Woody, I have a question. Um, well, trash. actually, not just one. I have all of them. Trash. I have all the questions. Uh, why does he want to go to the trash? Because he was made from trash. trash. Look, I know this is a little strange, but you got to trust me on this. The lighting quality that Jean-Claude created matched with your camera angle choices. It's the reason, by the way, I think the ending scene of the movie is so emotional when the toys are hugging goodbye on top of the RV. Down to the light bulb, you're creating such warmth in, in the lighting, shallow depth of field. And I was wondering if you could talk about making sure that that sequence specifically when the toys are leaving Woody behind, was there an effort on your part to make sure that visually that scene was wrapping up the entire movie in, in the best possible way? That sequence is very tricky in a sense. People have to understand what where Woody is coming from. They have to understand what Woody is feeling. When we first got the, the script or the storyboard, it ended kind of abruptly, you know? So basically, Woody asked Forky, tell Buzz to meet us at the carousel. And Buzz sort of trying to kill everyone, trying to get the RV back to the carousel and pick up Woody. I think when we first started working, the script basically go, oh, Woody, just walk up to Buzz and just say, oh, take good care of, uh, of the toys. And to me, it is not, I don't really feel what Woody is feeling yet. Buzz just trying to kill everyone, come and pick you up. And all of a sudden, oh, now, now you don't have to pick me up now. You know, goodbye. And I'm trying to think of a way to give the scene a little bit more weight. At first, I was thinking Woody has to understand that Bonnie doesn't need me anymore. And and even though if I go back to Bonnie, there's, there's nothing much I can do to help her. So at first, I was thinking maybe when Woody can do a slow walk over to Buzz, 
And then he would see Bonnie, you know, playing with Forky and being happy and realize that she really doesn't need me. And I thought, well, then I have to introduce. Bonnie was sleeping and now he should, we have to wake her up. She has to do all this playing. And I said, like, no, that's too much. And then I started thinking back to the prologue of the film when he was about to get into the box with Bo. And we have a shot uh, of his hand and tilting up to his face. And I thought, well, you know, I always like um, using same as shots because I think that actually gives this film a very good structure. I use the same as shots on uh, Up. I, th I don't think a lot of people notice this. On Up, uh, when Carl, as a young child, watching the newsreel of the dirigible taking off of months uh, when he is longing to be that person when he's we're looking uh, up to months when the dirigible take off it's the same shot of him at the end of the film the dirigible taking off that two shots is exactly the same shots that basically saying that okay now he's living his childhood's dream and i love using same as shots in the beginning and the end of trying to uh basically tie the whole things together i go okay so if i actually have a same as shots when woody is climbing down the carousel when he's saying goodbye to Bo again seeing his hand tilting up to his face Bo touching his face and then she adjusts his head these three shots are exactly the same as a prologue so if I do this exact same as shots in the end that will put the audience back to the prologue of the film that's when Woody was about to climb in but he decided not to and now it is a second chance. And you see walking away from his second chance again. So after that three shots, for that long walk of him walking back to bus, I think the audience know exactly what Woody is thinking. You see him making the mistake again by choosing constant over change because he's too afraid of change. That's why it makes it more emotional. And I think I put the audience into Woody's head purely using a cinematic language. Does this mean Woody's a lost toy? He's not lost. Not anymore. To infinity and beyond. My last question to you regards the evolution of your visual language and the legacy of wonderful work you'll be leaving behind. I mean, it's clear from this entire conversation that you've been pushing the envelope with each new project and it looks like you have no intention of stopping anytime soon. So I was wondering how has your understanding of cinematography and visual language evolved from say your first DP credit on The Incredibles to the way you approach cinematography now? And what has the conversation been like with yourself in regards to the great work you've produced and the work you're still looking to produce. I think the reason that I like to structure the film the way I structure it is because I want to give the film more meanings. If the character is feeling a certain way and I use a certain camera language and as the character changes throughout the film, the camera takes on a different style. I think that conflict between the two styles supports the character's emotions and it gives the camera a little bit more meaning. And I think meaning is important because I think meaning means emotions. And hopefully I can do more. I think in the beginning, I was a little bit more, more timid, you know, because I'm not sure if this will work. I think the more I work on it, I feel that these really resonate with people. I hope I can do more of it. Patrick, we are so grateful for all the amazing movies you have brought to the big screen and, and for being so generous with your time. So oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And again, all the best of luck for the projects to come. Okay, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You've got 
friend in me You've got a friend in me And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Patrick for taking the time to call in and to Eric for doing the final mix on all of these episodes. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show or find our Facebook page. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. You